Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. And welcome back to the Game Plan Podcast, 1029thegame.com. Alongside Brian Perkins, I'm Judah Newby. Going to talk about a lot on today's show this Friday morning, the 26th of January. But first, we've got to let you know some exciting stuff going on with the podcast. New social media presence on Twitter, at Game Plan Pod. Perkins, you helped put this together, obviously. So am I saying that right? It's at Game Plan Pod, It's right? at Game Plan Pod, and we're, we're in the 21st century, baby. Come on. We finally did it. You know, the MySpace didn't work out, nope. so we decided to go. I was I was holding out hope for the MySpace. Yeah. I was one of the last ones. Yeah, I mean, who knows what's next? A Snapchat filter? Ooh, I mean, Let's not get too bold. I mean, you never know. Let's so. not get too bold. Like Pete Carroll, we are setting our ways, right? Yeah, right? we are. It's only through, we got to miss the playoffs in order to go yeah. forward with social media. Look, you handed off the the Twitter, um, you oh. know, responsibilities to me. And yeah. You didn't throw it to me, so I appreciate that. Well, as long so as got we done. got good uh, social media protection, a little bit better protection than the Seahawks got this year. Oh man, that's that's folks is what you call a segue. Oh man, it's been a couple weeks since we did this. I feel like I'm stretching myself back into game plan <laughs> podcast. Uh, shape. But coming up on today's show, we're talking about a lot of the Seahawks coaching staff changes. Plenty has been going on recently since the team finished nine and seven and missed the playoffs for the first time since 2011. Perkins and I will discuss how much of these uh, coaching changes were necessary. Who are you most sad to see leave? And what can we expect now from the team moving forward? A lot to discuss with, but Perkins, let's just start with the uh, primary move, and that's an offensive coordinator. Daryl Bevel leaves the team. Uh, the team that went to two Super Bowls with Daryl Bevel coordinating that offense. Of course, the peaks of that offense came when Marshawn Lynch was running the football behind an offensive line that was pretty strong and talented. Um, and Russell Wilson was playing within himself and playing good football, taking care of the football, and was allowing himself to kind of organically grow in the offense. But correct me if I'm wrong, starting with Daryl Bevel's exit, um, things started to go south when when more and more um, – responsibility fell on Russell Wilson, not in the sense that he couldn't fulfill those responsibilities, but in the sense that it didn't allow the run first Pete Carroll philosophy to kind of grow in its intended form. And once that started happening, you had an offensive line that wasn't able to deal with the pressures of uh, standing up in pass pro and also blocking in the run sustainably. And it just didn't work out. Yeah. It felt like the scheme because things had changed, you know, the offensive line had been, conditioned uh, for simplicity in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Zone blocking, really uh, a run-heavy focus. And when the responsibilities changed and the responsibilities shifted, um, while you saw Bevel maybe want to change philosophy, the team did not have the personnel or did not have the talent to execute that properly. And that's what we saw last year was, uh, and honestly the last couple years, was just a, a complete decline offensively. Um, under under Daryl Bevel. And I think another thing is, you know, I don't think that Pete wants to change his philosophy. And I think these hires show that. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I, I honestly think that that Pete was slowly, slowly giving more autonomy to Daryl Bevel, to Chris Richard, and you saw some changes that didn't end up working out. And if they would have, if they would have won 12 games this year and made the playoffs and you know, made it to the conference championship. I don't know if these changes are made because maybe it proves it can work. But Carol, you know, maybe looked at things and said, look, we're not doing this my way anymore. We didn't make the playoffs. We're going back to my way. 
and it's time to to, to start fresh here. As for Daryl Bevel, his name has surfaced now in offensive coordinator searches in Minnesota and Arizona, among other places. I'm not sure where else his name may have surfaced, but um, going back to Minnesota for him would be a return. He was there under Brett Favre or coaching Brett Favre. Arizona would be interesting given that it's within the division. As for the Seahawks, we had a podcast a few weeks ago kind of debating whether or not John DeFilippo, the quarterback's coach at Philadelphia, seemed to be the hot offensive mind. That commodity, if the Eagles had an early playoff exit, the Seahawks could jump on him. But before the Eagles-Falcons game even kicked off, in fact, it was earlier Saturday morning, I believe, uh, that the news came down that the Seahawks had offered Brian Schottenheimer the job of offensive coordinator. It was later confirmed the following Tuesday when the team announced it. But that was not necessarily the hire, I think, that you and I initially wanted at the time. What was your first reaction to hearing the news that Brian Schottenheimer was named OC? Underwhelming. I mean, that's a that's a, a, a word that I feel like I overuse because I tend to be a negative person sometimes. But <laughs> but when I heard the first, you, you know, you hear you start to hear scuttlebutt, right? That um, you know they're gonna they're they're interested in Schottenheimer. They're looking at him, and I went, oh God, no, he's a retread. You know, the, these are the words: underwhelming, retread. He felt like a, you know at some point he was an up and comer that was kind of that sexy name for maybe future head coaching jobs and this and that, and it never really came through. And we can get into why that happened based on um, some of the teams that he coordinated over the years. Um, you know, and another word that came to mind a little bit was nepotism. And, you know, are we talking about Brian Schottenheimer or are we talking about Marty Schottenheimer? <laughs> you know, when when looking at guys, because I think a lot of times we tend to glorify certain coaches because they come from a certain family when I don't think that's necessarily always the right choice just because you know they grew up around football doesn't mean that they are going to be the next big thing or be as successful as you know their father was in theory right. so those were kind of a few of the first thoughts that were kind of floating through my head if you look at what Brian Schottenheimer's merits are as an offensive coordinator 2006 to 2011 with the New York Jets 2012 to 2014 with the St. Louis Rams and as Seahawks fans we Remember, uh, you know, those matchups with the Rams pretty well, but we don't necessarily remember them for how dynamic the Rams were on offense, right? Um, Sam Bradford, Austin Davis, variety of quarterbacks that they went through, even though... Kellen Clemens. Kellen Clemens. Even though Austin Davis did pull off a, somehow, upset of the Seahawks as a starting quarterback in St. Louis one year. But, Perkins, we were talking about where the Rams ranked offensively and the Jets ranked in, in some rushing categories and total offense categories and scoring categories. And there was, you know, it, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a category that impressed you under Schottenheimer. And honestly, not just there, but it, you know, he's been an offensive coordinator for 10 seasons, um, either college or NFL nine out of 10 in the NFL. And, you know, if you look at the overall team record when he was there, 81, 75 and one, and that's a few years, you know, Rex Ryan had a couple of good years Eric Mangini, who he came in with originally, had um, a couple of good seasons before he got fired. Um, but you look at his average, you know, where the offense, and this is yards per game, where they finished on average every year under Schottenheimer, 22nd in the NFL. When you look at the college level, his one season in Georgia, they finished 82nd in the nation. They averaged 377 yards per game. And if you want to compare to other teams that year, Rutgers and Pitt were above and directly above and below them in rankings, which 
I mean, to me, it doesn't inspire a ton of confidence. He was coaching in a conference that is not known for offense, in, you know, in the yeah. SEC. But, you know, you look at those numbers, and they certainly don't blow your hair back. No, I, don't, I, I don't see, even in his NFL history, any numbers that blow your hair back. I mean, it's all below average in terms of ranking in the league. The best year he had was in New York under Rex Ryan when they won 11 games, and they were ranked 11th in yards per game. That was the best season that he had, um, and that was in 2010, I believe. Um, other than that, I mean, you look at it, you know, his three years in St. Louis, 23rd in the league, 30th in the league, 28th in the league, you know, 25th, 26th, 20th, 25th. Those were four of his six years in New York. He was His highest ranked was 11th. His second highest was 16th in offense. Now, to be fair, you look at a lot of the quarterbacks that he had. He has never had a player like Russell Wilson. Right. Right. He's um, had a at lot the of, you know, inexperienced kind of bad quarterbacks. Yeah, guys that that maybe you thought had a higher ceiling than it turns out they actually did. Um, now, that being said, he still wasn't able to tailor any offense uh, to be successful regardless of having, let's say, at best game management level quarterbacks. They still weren't able to really get an offense going, um, you know, in the run game. Um, so that just makes me wonder about, you know, creativity, adjustments, things like that especially on those those Jets teams under Rex Ryan because there was talent on offense. He did have some guys on offensive line um, that had a lot of experience that were pro bowlers. He had some weapons on the outside and at running back, and they still weren't really able to produce a lot. So, I mean, those numbers to me don't inspire a lot of confidence, and it doesn't really change my mind based on what I thought initially about the hire, to be honest. Now there is a narrative around Schottenheimer being able to reinvigorate the running game. Even though he's got a quarterback background, played quarterback at University of Florida, was on the 96 National Championship team that Steve Spurrier coached, was a quarterback's coach with the San Diego Chargers, helped develop Drew Brees to become, you know, I, I hesitate to say the passer he is today because Brees' peak has been married to Sean Payton's peak as well. That being said, there is a good relationship that Drew Brees has with Brian Schottenheimer. And a lot of the quarterbacks that he's coached have gone on record to say that they have good relationships with Schottenheimer. He's a yeller. He's a motivator. He will keep you on edge. But he is also, he he just gets into the film room and studies, studies, studies. Very detail-oriented. The type of guy that will yell at wide receivers if they're lining up two feet inside of where they're supposed to be lining up. So this guy's like very addicted to detail. Um, and then when you... Talk about the running games that he was able to help get going with the New York Jets, specifically with a rookie and second-year quarterback in Mark Sanchez, helping produce top-10 rushing offenses. Thomas Jones had a 1,000-yard season. He helped maximize LaDainian Tomlinson and Sean Green into having about 1,700 yards combined between them as well. And for a Seattle offense that obviously has been struggling to run the football post-Marshawn Lynch, it'll be interesting to see if Brian Schottenheimer can kind of reinstill his rushing success that he's had in parts in his offensive coordinator history, if he can instill that in Seattle as well. Well, and that's why when you when when I look at this hire, I go, man, Pete is going to go back to the basics here. He's going to go back to what he believes is the groundwork for success. Um, you know, you look at his history, and and you do see Schottenheimer, who has had more success running the football as an offensive coordinator. Now, some of that does play into the fact that, as we've said, I mean, who's who was his best quarterback? Would you say it's Bradford? I would say it's Bradford in terms of talent, but even Bradford was hurt for hurt a year. most of the time. Yeah. I mean, gosh, that guy hasn't been healthy most of and his when, career. Look, big picture, when you're talking about Sam Bradford being the most talented quarterback you've had, stepping into a job now with Russell Wilson, 
Big difference. That's a huge difference. Huge difference. I mean, Sam Bradford ended up third on his, you know, depth chart. You know, well, I guess technically second, right, going into the playoff game. But you know what I mean. He, mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't beat out uh, uh, Case Keenum. You know, um, who turned out to have a pretty good year. But it's kind of hard. It feels a little bit like the jury's out because he's never really had a talented quarterback to work with. So was the philosophy run heavy because? he understood that the quarterbacks had limits and they had a ceiling and that's kind of, you know, the way that he had to tailor the offense for them to have any success at all. Or was he not able to get the most out of his guys? I don't know. I think there's a lot, you know, left to be told about that. And that's kind of weird because we're talking about a guy that's, you know, been an offensive coordinator for 10 seasons in the NFL. Right. So the jury shouldn't be out on a guy like that. Yeah, but there should it, be enough sample size to render a verdict at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we're talking about just Pierce numbers based on what he has coached, it, it's underwhelming. And, it, I mean, by those numbers, you would think Seattle, I mean, the expectations wouldn't be much going into next year. But, you know, he's never had a Russell Wilson, so we'll have to see. And there's still a lot of time to go back and kind of dissect the Schottenheimer offense and uh, the personnel, I'm sure, will transition on the Seahawks offensive line too and let's kind of talk about Mike Solari who's the new man to replace Tom Cable as offensive line coach in Seattle Uh, first putting a bow on the Tom Cable offensive line era this is a man that not only instilled a zone running scheme philosophy which is what the majority of teams are going with in the NFL these days but the Seahawks were unique in the point that Tom was an assistant head coach to Pete Carroll so he had a lot of uh, say in terms of personnel drafting guys to the offensive line, scouting particular athletes to his liking. We all know about the defense to offensive linemen transition that Seattle employed more than once, uh, even though that's a little bit overblown at times, but they've employed it more than once to try to get guys to play on the offensive line. And one of those guys was J.R. Sweezy, and he got a big contract in free agency, to be fair. But that being said, we look back on the Tom Cable offensive line era, and again, post-Marshawn Lynch, this was time for him to go. It was, and um, you know, I'm a big fan of Football Outsiders. They have a lot of good statistics on there. Here's adjusted offensive line yards, which essentially, without getting too into the nitty-gritty, means how, how much of an impact on the running game did they have, okay? In 2010, the year before Cable got there, they were ranked 28th in the league, which clearly, and it's funny because 2010, we all associate with Marshawn Lynch and bringing him in, but remember, he came in kind of mid-season. It was week six, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the Beast Quake was a great run, but overall, you know, they were still figuring things out. But you bring in Tom Cable the next year in 2011, they're ranked 19th. Then they shoot all the way up to fourth in 2012. I think that uh, they brought in some guy that's kind of mobile at quarterback that might have helped that a little bit. Mm. Um, Fourth, ninth, fourth, fourth, and then in 16 and 17, 26th and 31st. Wow. That speaks for itself. A decision had to be made there. Yeah. But I think that when we look back at the Tom Cable era, let's take let's take his flaws as a human being aside real quick because it's hard for me to get past some of the issues he's had in his past. But Which, as a reminder to everyone, involves um, physical assault, does it not? Yeah, DV. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so... Uh, but but let's just take that out, out of the equation here. I mean, we saw an offensive line that was top 10 in, you know, five, what, four years of his seven in Seattle. And we're talking about a team that was bottoms in the NFL when he came in. So within two years, he had brought that offensive line to a top five territory, obviously with the help of a potential hall of fame running back and a quarterback that has that trajectory as well. But 
I think that he had more success than maybe maybe we give him credit for. That's just kind of how I look at it now. Well, the when struggles I'm, when I'm were so back. visible down the stretch that it kind of, and the same thing can be said for Daryl Bevel. The struggles were so visible and apparent that it kind of reflects poorly on their overall legacy, whereas when things were going well, they weren't getting the praise they deserved. In the end, the the fall-off was so staggering that I think that it's hard to look back at with any positivity at all, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you saw a, a an offensive line slowly regress. We saw a team go, an offensive line go from top five in adjusted yards to 26. Yeah. And anytime a guy gets fired to that point, you know, you're not going to look on his career positively, positively in, in the immediate aftermath. And I mean, I think that you look on his career. I mean, I always thought Tom Cable was, was never a very good coach. Like, that's how I always looked at him in Seattle. But when you actually go back and look at the statistics, I don't think that was fair of, of me to, to assume that because mm-hmm. he did coach some good offensive lines. And like you said, um, they did bring in guys that that he coached that ended up leaving and, and getting some good money in free agency. Not only Sweezy, but Okung and and some other guys. So um, Giacomini even had some success in New York before he ended up falling to the wayside a little bit. So you know, I think with with Tom Cable, it feels like a guy that you're never going to look back and remember fondly. But you know, I also he look had at, his moments. I also <laughs> look at to how Seattle did in terms of drafting and developing linemen because that's as much a reflection of Cable as is the actual NFL production that his units had. And they were just poor, simply yep. poor in the last few years, especially drafted more offensive linemen than any other team in the league. I believe they drafted 14 offensive linemen in between the years, 2014 and 2017, two of those 14 got meaningful snaps Two. Yeah. That can't happen. Yeah. And especially all the fifth and sixth and seventh round guys. I mean, that's where you get so much value. Chris Carson was a seventh round pick, you know, and, and yet the offensive line prospects never came through. Never. You know, and he, and that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great point because when he came in in 2011, you look at that line and there were some good guys on that line that were already there. And when he started to have say in who Seattle brought in, that's when things started to fall off. Um, he, he hit a so, couple. And to be fair, I think, you know, there was some promise in the development of George Fant, a guy that still we kept be. ribbing on. And you never know the fact that Fant got hurt, you know, for the season, week two of the preseason. If he's healthy and that offensive line gets to stay healthy, sometimes you never know what that what that unit could have produced. Possibly, possibly with Dane, with something Dane Brown better. coming in though. It still didn't seem too much better. Which, but Dane Brown's not a cable guy either. To be fair, you know, he's still a pro. Bowler. Yeah, because he's a pro bowler. <laughs> so he wasn't a cable guy. All right, let's talk about Mike Solari though. What do we know about this guy? I mean, he's coached for a million years in this. Yeah, league. this guy. This guy was coaching high school football a decade before I was born. Yeah. Um, he's been around forever. Just last week, turned 63 years old, by the way, January 16th. So happy birthday, Mike. It's funny because, you know, you talk about like uh, when you think about careers, right, like in media or sports, like you always you always hear the guys like, yeah, I started in this small town and then I worked my way up. That was like literally his career it was like exactly <laughs> what you would assume a coach's career would be. He starts in high school, then goes to a really small college, a couple of small colleges, ends up at Boise State in the 80s. And really moves up from there, you know, gets into lands in the NFL, um, you know, in the ironically, the year I was born a decade later after he started in high school with the Cowboys. And this is a guy that just brings a ton, a ton of experience to the to the table, to the cable, I almost said. And, you know, a guy that has been in Seattle before. So when I said retread with Schottenheimer, (laughs) this is kind of a retread as well, but a guy that really does have a lot of experience. Yeah, he was an offensive line coach with the Seahawks from 2008 to 2009. He left when Pete Carroll came in. 
Uh, and then Stillari, you know, we remember the 49ers teams that went to three straight NFC championship games, won one of those games between 2012 and 2014. So Solari is the offensive line coach in San Francisco during that time. You think of guys like Mike Capati, like Joe Staley. Um, you know, those were great rushing attacks. Frank Gore and Kendall Hunter, Michael James, among others. Those were great rushing attacks that San Francisco had. And I like the results that, you know, Solari helped produce there. Yeah, there's a couple things about that. First of all, you talk about top five rushing offensive lines. Look at the Niners offensive line stats and the rushing stats during his time there. And mm-hmm. this, once again, plays into the ideology that Seattle wants to get back to to what they've been doing. Because, And not only that, but this is a guy that has experience with mobile quarterbacks. You know, you look at um, – he was, he was an assistant offensive line coach in San Francisco in the 90s when Steve Young was there. He was assistant offensive line coach with the Packers a couple years back. And he was the offensive line coach with the 49ers. I mean, that's three in the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Mid 2010s. That's three quarterbacks in Kaepernick, and and um, Rogers, and in Steve Young that are mobile. So he knows how to work with that style of quarterback. And because I think what we saw, what we have seen with this offensive line in the years past, right, are holding penalties because of guy, because of Russell Wilson escaping the pocket. You know, Dwayne Brown came in and I think had a hard time dealing sometimes with the way that Russell Wilson. Um, uh, stood in the pocket and how quickly he rolled out every now and then. You have a guy coming in that has experience with quarterbacks that do just those very things, which I think is encouraging. Yeah, and you think about his time as an assistant in San Francisco in the 90s, that means he was on the same coaching staff as Pete Carroll, yeah. who was defensive coordinator there for a time. Um, Solari also was the offensive coordinator calling plays with the Kansas City Chiefs for a pair of seasons in which they went to the playoffs and had running games, you know, like Priest Holmes, Larry Johnson, I think, was there later on in 06 and 07. Um, and, you know, th- this thought just came to mind as well, the fact that Pete Carroll, between Brian Schottenheimer and Mike Solari, these are guys who were opponents to Carroll in the division not too long ago. Schottenheimer's Rams, Solari's unit with San Francisco coaching for Harbaugh, you know, there's a, maybe there's a sense of Carol of like, let's reestablish our identity by kind of refining what our identity was when we were winning the division in 13 and 14, when we were coming in second in the division in 12, Russell's rookie year. Who got the best out of us then? It was our opponents. It was guys like Solari coaching line at Frisco. It was like Schottenheimer coaching offense at St. Louis. Let's get those guys together. Do you think there's any kind of thought process there of kind of trying to reestablish the identity Seattle had in terms of, division because we know that Carroll's prioritized winning the division. Yeah, I think there could be the problem. The the one problem I see with all this, because it's hard for me, honestly, to question Pete Carroll's decision-making. He's been the most successful coach in Seahawks history. It should be. It should be. He's a great coach. Hasn't he earned the benefit (laughs) of the doubt with what he's done in Seattle? I mean, how quickly, I mean, that team was made the divisional round their first year there after he turned over 90% of the roster. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, so it's hard to it's hard for me to fully question. That's why I use words like underwhelming feels like a retread because I still want to trust what Pete is doing. The one hang up though, Judah, I still see, and this is something we've talked about since the season has ended, is look at where your money is allocated offensively. You know, it's still it you have over twenty million dollars going to your quarterback. And I just wonder, can they go back to what they were? When Russell Wilson was making $600,000 a year, Bobby Wagner was making half a million dollars. I don't even know if he's making half a million dollars. That's what I wonder because is this team going to be 2012, 2013, 
Or are they going to be 2010, 2011-ish? Because they just don't have the talent there and the money is not allocated to the positions that they want to emphasize. Well, I think, first of all, that question, we should make that a subject of a podcast maybe next week in terms of, like, there's so much to dive into there. Because my first initial reaction is, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. But similarly, the idea of how you structure an offense, you know, where does that start with? I don't think it necessarily should start with who your highest paid player is. The priority should not be it's let your, your highest talented player, right? It should, yeah. Well, it obviously should be highlighting the talents of your players, no doubt. And while I think Russell Wilson obviously has increased in talent from his time as a second year and a third year pro, I also think it hurts the offense for them to constantly rely on his heroics, his. Um, outside-the-box capabilities. It's kind of like Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, while the most explosive plays from the Seattle offense comes when Russell Wilson does Russell Wilson things, it's not the most sustainable form of offense. And that and that causes its floor to be low and its ceiling to be high. And that's too much volatility to rely on for sustained offense. And Who's to say Russell Wilson can't improve when he's in a more organic flow of run-first offense? It's funny because when you think about, like, top plays from Wilson's career, like, even this year, like, look at what was his best, what was his most notable best play this year? It was the game in Arizona. It was the throw to Baldwin for me or the run against Indianapolis where yeah. he scored that weird, t- crazy 40-yard touchdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one too. But I, I I went back to the Arizona game and the throw to Baldwin. Yeah, no. That's exactly what you're talking about. Like, outside the pocket, there's like two guys after him. He spins. He just kind of throws a, you know, chucks a ball with a, like a no-look pass. Yeah. And Baldwin, you know, catches it. And then you look back. Uh, remember the flip play to Marshawn Lynch oh. a, a couple years ago? Mm-hmm. I mean, these plays were were Russell Wilson's heroics. They the lateral against Philly this year, where he's scrambling, yeah. he runs, he laterals the ball. Those are awesome, dynamic Russell Wilson plays. They are, but you're right. You can't rely on that mm-hmm. to be to consistently win football games. And I think that speaks a little bit to their issues early in games, because that is a lot of times second half Russell Wilson. You know, you got to write this paper an hour. It's due in an hour. We got to write this paper. We got to get it done. The game's almost over. We're down by 10. We got to start making plays, you know, and Russell Wilson starts improvising and that's all fine and dandy. But, you know, that I just don't know if that's a a long-term winning formula. And like you said, going back to structure is going to be a big deal. Well, and structure can involve play action, obviously. Yes. And it can involve read option. And read option. And those two areas of the offense, Russell is very good at. And think of how much more good he can become at that when the complementary aspect, the run game, improves. And I think the big question with that, though, is do they have the pieces right now to be structured? Mm-hmm. Because the, with with Solari in the offensive line, does he have the pieces right now to create? Because I think offensively the structure really begins in the trenches. I mean, if you can't run block, if you can't pass protect, you have no structure. You have what you had last year. Right which was Russell Wilson running for his life half the season and averaging three yards a carry. Well, let's make an executive decision here. Next week's podcast is going to be talking about just the Seahawks offense. <laughs> yeah. The whole thing. Uh, Schottenheimer, Solari, particularly. What they've done, how that might look like with the current personnel constituted and what what changes in personnel might be necessary. Yeah. And we'll also obviously talk about the fo- the uh, Super Bowl and I'd as love well. And I'd love to compare 2012 Seattle to 2018 Seattle and 2010 Seattle to 2018 Seattle. Because I think there's some correlations with both of those teams. 
So uh, I, yeah. I think I'd like to have that conversation. It'll be interesting. Of the 25 assistant coaches that were on the staff last year, seven of them have departed, including most recently Heath Farwell taking a special teams role in with the Carolina Panthers. Um, that includes Chris Richard as defensive coordinator. He exits. At first it was determined or it was thought to be Chris Richard could pursue other opportunities. He wasn't just straight up fired. Then reports from the back end suggested Ken Norton Jr. was becoming defensive coordinator, all while Chris Richard technically still had a job. I don't know if it was handled the best way. Ultimately, Richard does leave. He has since taken a role as secondary coach with the Dallas Cowboys, and Ken Norton Jr. makes his return to Seattle, where he was an assistant under Pete Carroll coaching linebackers, and then went to the Oakland Raiders as defensive coordinator. Perkins struggled there, and now he's back running the defense in Seattle. Ken Norton Jr. with the defense. Yeah, I remember... It felt like Ken Norton was looked over a little bit when Seattle had a, a defensive coordinator position open, and when he went to the the Raiders, I was like, ah, oh, damn, like that's a pretty big loss for mm-hmm. Seattle. That's it, how I felt. It was a Richard over Norton selection by Pete in it terms was. of promotion from within. Which I don't know if I should have been shocked that Pete picked a defensive backs coach to be defensive coordinator based on his history. I'm just messing around, but you know, I I think that Richard. Let's just start there and look back at his time in Seattle, I think that he got a bit of an unfair shake, my opinion. Um, this was a guy that inherited a defense that was you know, top two in the NFL right as guys started aging out a little bit and injuries started to happen. And you, you slowly but surely start, started to see what we all feared and knew what, that was inevitable at some point or another, and that was guys starting to age a little bit, especially on the defensive line. They never really had that presence inside um, that they were looking for when Richard was defensive coordinator. And he did change philosophy a little bit, too. You know, he was another guy that, I mean, you know, when you look at like Quinn and you look at um, Bradley. Bradley, thank you, Gus Bradley, who's who with the Chargers now, right? Defensive coordinator with the Chargers. He's with the Chargers. You look at, at their track record and it was just so much base defense, right? And, and, we are going to, you know what we're going to do every time, but you're not going to be able to beat us because we are so good at it, right? Oh, it's kind of like what the Falcons do now. You can look at Quinn's defense, yeah. and it's being able to get some rush, yeah, but they're just faster than you in the secondary and at the linebacker position. They want you to complete short passes so they can hit you. Yeah. I mean, was that not Seattle 2012-13? Yeah. to 13? It was, and very disciplined. Yeah. Very, I mean, they were just buttoned up 100%. Even though teams knew exactly what they were going to do, they couldn't. They could not move the ball on them. Sustainably. I mean, it was incredible. Right. It was incredible. And what you saw was a bit of a change, and maybe that's because guys were losing a step. Maybe it's lack of coaching, but we started to see more blitzes um, from KJ, from Wagner. You started to see more, a, a, a little bit more aggression defensively than I think we saw in years past. Now, was that because defensive line was struggling? Couldn't get to the quarterback? I'm not sure, but, you know, in the end, we saw the defense this year, and I'm a little surprised that Richard was let go, to be honest with you, because I thought he was pretty good in Seattle. Yeah, I'm not sure you know, how much we can speak on the locker room chemistry in terms of how guys are buying into Richard's leadership either. I think that could be another aspect to it. Norton, obviously a leader. Guys know what he did as a playing career. I mean, one of the best linebackers in football, multiple Super Bowl-winning uh, linebacker with the Dallas Cowboys and San Francisco 49ers, a guy that Carroll coached in San Francisco— He's loud, he's vociferous, he's going to get up in your face, he's going to demand the best out of you in terms of attitude and leadership. I know Richard tried to do that at points, but you know, I'm just it's conjecture 
I'm just not sure if he could have the same effect as Norton. And when you're weighing two candidates, both of whom going to probably run the same scheme, that leadership component probably has got to play some role in it. All right. Uh, other coaching changes. Dave Canales moves from wide receiver to quarterbacks coach. He's going to replace longtime QB coach Carl Smith. Not sure really how often a wide receivers coach goes to quarterbacks coach, but Canales has been a longtime Carroll disciple. Travis Jones leaves as a defensive assistant. He was the former defensive line coach as well. He was a defensive assistant this past season, and uh, he leaves. Brian Schneider is still technically the special teams coordinator, which is only noteworthy to, to us because, well, the special teams did struggle at times. I feel like the last few years special teams has, has fallen off, which is why I got to say, like, Richard's out, <laughs> Bevel's out, you're you're you know cleaning house with a lot of assistants, yet you keep the guy that oversaw, argue you know your worst unit yeah. probably I mean, uh, of the year. Heath Farwell goes. He was an assistant uh, special teams coordinator. So and maybe by next week Schneider will be gone. But um, yeah, I don't necessarily know if he needs to. Yeah, it was just surprising to me because they made so many changes, and that's the one decision they decide to to kind of you know stay steady at, which is interesting. Pat McPherson still around as the tight ends coach, which is noteworthy in this sense. Uh, I did go back, watch some film on on Schottenheimer's offenses, and which, as is typical in today's NFL, a lot of tight end blocking responsibilities. Um, you know, not unique, especially in a zone run scheme where the tight end needs to block. But Pat McPherson's tight ends, Jimmy Graham, Luke Wilson, not exactly the best blockers in the world. Uh, I, I miss Zach Miller. I mean, again, a guy like that in today's NFL age of needing tight ends to block in the run game and be able to catch passes on third down and things like that. A guy like Zach Miller, so invaluable. Um, and he his role in those teams in, in 12 and 13 can't be understated or can't be overstated enough. I did not appreciate Zach Miller enough when I he was in Seattle. He goes about his business quietly, but such an important player. Well, it's so funny because I remember when they brought him in, I was like, oh, man, this is – like you look at his numbers and catching and – you know, that was at a time when tight ends, it was like really sexy for tight ends to to really be involved heavily in the passing game, right? Like in the pass catching game. Mm-hmm. Like you saw, I mean, Gonzalez was still in the league and like all these guys and Jimmy Graham was coming up. And, and Miller Gronk was doing and, that stuff under Tom Cable in Oakland. Yeah. And that was Tom Cable's guy. And then when Miller left, kind of with beast mode leaving, Cable didn't have the tight end he could rely on to help block. He didn't. But it was just it's just so funny because I remember when when Miller came in, I was like, oh man, this guy's gonna have like eight hundred yards, you know, receiving and right. all these expectations. And I was like, you know, and then you kind of look at his numbers and you're like, man, that he's been a disappointment. But when you look back, he was so important to that offense. He was. I mean, so important. Yeah. All right, let's close it up here. Overall, big picture. What do we make of these coaching changes? Were all of them necessary in your mind for a team that went 9-7 and seven and missed the playoffs, arguably on Blair Walsh missing three field goals against Washington and obviously not taking care of business Week 17 against Arizona as well. But, you know, this team was pretty darn close to making a playoff spot. Seven of their 25 assistants are out the door, including the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. Necessary moves or not? I think that they were necessary though I don't necessarily agree with – I mean, once again, I want to give Pete Carroll the benefit of the doubt. I, I'm still not sold on Schottenheimer. Defensively, Pete Carroll's going to run that defense. So, um, you know, Ken Norton, he, he wasn't overly successful, you know, in Oakland, obviously. Um, now, he didn't have as many pieces. He had some really big names there, but he didn't have, like, an overall defense that had the talent, I think, necessary to be a top-10 defense in the league. So – 
is that really fair, you know, for him, um, given the situation he was put in? But with that being said, I do think that most of these changes were necessary. It's just interesting the way they've done it. It feels staggered. It feels disjointed, which ironically is like what Seattle's offense was all of last year. And, you know, like Farwell gets, uh, you know, he leaves what today or earlier this week, right? He gets let go. Um, you know, you look at Richard, that whole situation, like you mentioned earlier, and was that handled the best? Um, you know, even with Schottenheimer, they it felt like they kind of rushed to make that decision, like he was going to be heavily sought after. And who knows, maybe he would have been. But... That was Ian Rappaport's report, is that they offered him because they didn't want him to take an offer from somebody else, which is just an odd narrative. Like, why would people be jumping at, why would Brian Schottenheimer, first of all, take the first job offered to him if he knows the Russell Wilson job is in his, you know, grasp? Props to his agent. I guess so. <laughs> and maybe that's faulty information, but that is Ian Rappaport's uh, report. It wouldn't be the first time Ian's wrong, unfortunately. But I don't know. I just I look at it and I, I say, okay, the changes were necessary, but the jury's out, in my opinion, on a lot of the decisions made. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is I don't think we're going to, I, whatever happens, let's say like in the first six to eight weeks of next season, or even all of next season, I don't know if it's fair to judge any hires based on, you know, one year of implementing a new system. So that's kind of the tough thing too is, I don't know how much we're going to learn after one season unless we see a complete 180, which I don't think is possible given what the personnel they have, which we'll break down next week. He's Brian Perkins. I'm Judah Newby. Follow us on Twitter at GamePlanPod. We'll be posting this later this Friday morning. We'll be back again next week. Taking a look at the Seahawks offense, Schottenheimer, Solari specifically, and what they'll want to do with this team. And, of course, talk Super Bowl next week as well. For Brian Perkins, I'm Judah Newby. This is the Game Plan Podcast.